2. As we begin to look at chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 today. And uh, as you turn there, thanks for everybody who's uh, checked in on Caroline and I and asked about us. We're faring fine with uh, Parker away at camp and Sandy, Vivian, Anna Claire, and Poland. It's just the two of us. And uh, we're getting along just fine. Somebody was asking earlier about uh, who the cook was. And uh, I was just telling somebody, we went to Costco. And at Costco, you can buy like this three-pound bag of pre-cooked bacon. And uh, it is awesome. And so, you know, put in the toaster oven 60 seconds. And so we're having bacon for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner. It is a, a glorious thing to be on this side of the new covenant. And uh, we are thankful for it. But, uh, but we're getting along just fine. Um, Galatians 2, uh, if you've been with us in our study, uh, speaking of the, the new covenant, what's taking place here in Galatians is Paul is writing to address uh, a false gospel, a false teaching that has taken place among the Galatian believers. Uh, the Galatians were Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ under Paul's ministry. He had traveled there, shared the gospel there, established a church there. But then after he left, uh, they were a group of Jewish Christians who came in and negatively influenced these Gentile Christians. Uh, they were called Judaizers. And what they were teaching was that in order for these Gentile Christians to, to be truly saved, they had to adhere to the Old Covenant regulations. Uh, specifically, the issue of circumcision. And there were other things as well that they told them, well, you're, you're not fully a Christian unless you essentially become a Jew first. Uh, this was a false gospel. This was false teaching. This took away from the grace of the gospel uh, that Paul had taught, uh, that, that he had learned from Jesus and his revelation from Christ. And so Paul is now correcting these issues there in the church of Galatia. Uh, last week, we looked at how there at the second half of chapter 1, Paul shares his testimony about his life before Christ, how he became a Christian, and then his life as a result afterwards. And so we're going to pick up now in chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul is continuing now to talk about his life after he was converted. All the things God was at work doing, specifically how he was boldly taking a stand for the truth of the gospel when it was threatened. And so we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, which tells us about Paul going to Jerusalem uh, to address these issues of this false teaching there. So I reverence for God's Word. If you're able to, if you would stand as I read today's text for us. And this is what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, 
when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. If you would pray with me, church. Father, as we consider these words that Paul wrote to the Galatians in an effort to confront a false gospel and false teachers, I pray that You would help us, Lord, to discern today those false teachings that we have been exposed to. Those false teachers that are at work in our culture and in many churches today. Lord, help us to discern and understand the true Gospel of Jesus Christ. And help us to stand firm in that Gospel we ask. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we consider... What Paul is addressing here in the church of Galatia, we should be mindful of the words of Jesus. Here we see Paul confronting false teachers and false teachings that were at work in the church. And we should be mindful that Jesus said that's exactly what would happen. Today we see in the church false teachers and false teachings. We should be mindful. That too is exactly what Jesus said would happen. We see, for example, in Matthew chapter 13, as Jesus shares a parable about the weeds. You may remember that parable. Uh, Jesus talks about a a master, a, a farmer, who goes out and he plants good seed on his farm. He specifically plants good wheat seed, but he has an enemy. And the Scripture tells us, Jesus says in this parable, that this enemy sneaks in at night and goes into that field, and everywhere there's good seed planted, he plants weeds. Of course, this isn't evident right away, but over time, as the wheat begins to grow, so do the weeds, and so the servants come to the master and say, Master, why didn't you buy good seed? They think that perhaps the master planted bad seed and it had weeds in it, but the master's quick to say, no, I planted good seed. What's happened here is I believe my enemy came in and planted weeds among the wheat. Well, the servants say, should we go out there and just tear out the weeds? The master says, no, if you do that, you're going to tear out the wheat as well. We need to let it grow. And when it comes time to harvest, we'll go and we'll pull all those weeds out and we will cast them into the fire and then we will harvest the wheat. Jesus, in telling this story, wasn't just teaching a principle about farming. He was teaching about the church of Jesus Christ. And He was teaching that day would come very soon as we see it here in Galatia, and we continue as we see it in the church today where the enemy would seek to sow false gospels and false teachings in the church. You see, we might think uh, in that parable that, that it'd be more effective for the enemy just to come into that man's field and just wipe it out, just burn it down if he really wants to cause harm. But of course, if he does that, that farmer can go out there and just replant and rebuild. No, he does something far more wicked to him. And he tries to corrupt his entire 
harvest. He, he does something that won't be seen immediately, but will be seen over time. And friends, that's exactly what the enemy does to the church today. I believe the greatest threat for the church of Jesus Christ is not the Islamic terrorist who's going to come in and burn the building down. I think the greatest threat is false gospels and false teachings. That's what Jesus is saying here. See, somebody could come in and burn the building down. We'll just build another building. <laughs> and we don't need the building to worship Christ. But what the enemy so often does is he will send in those who preach a false gospel and he will then take the gospel and turn it and twist it and deceive many. And we've looked at how this was taking place in Galatia how this takes place today. You may remember the, the, the mathematic example I gave that we see so often false teachers, false teachings, that they often multiply the requirements for salvation that they usually add to what's required. They, they add to uh, the Word. They, they add things. They, they subtract usually away from the divinity of Jesus. They take away from who Christ was. They, they divide often allegiances between their followers and God and His Word, saying they are principally the ones they have to go through in order to get to God. And we see those things at work today, and we certainly see them at work here in the church of Galatia. And so my hope today as we walk through these ten verses as we consider what's taking place here with Paul and Barnabas and Titus as they go to Jerusalem and then as they're sent out to preach the gospel, my hope is that we might learn more about what we need to do today, specifically in regards to false teachings and false gospels. And especially in the day and age we live in where there are so many today who are just calling us to ignore doctrinal differences, to ignore different understandings of the Scripture, and just all lock, on, lock arms and all be unified. We shouldn't be so divisive. We shouldn't be so judgmental. That's what so many say. But there's a danger there. And I hope that we'll see it as we walk through this text today, to get today, beginning with that first point there in your outline. This reminder Paul gives us that gospel unity is centered on gospel truth. Gospel unity is and must be centered on gospel truth. Well, what does that mean? We'll look to the text here, verse 1. And Paul says, after 14 years, he went up again to Jerusalem. Now, we know from the book of Acts that Paul made multiple trips to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was, in essence, kind of the, the hub, the, the center of all things going on. And so they would go to Jerusalem. They would meet as apostles. They would discuss teaching and, and different issues. And what we see in Acts chapter 15 is there's actually what we call the Jerusalem Council. Now, there at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, we know that Paul and Barnabas are there to confront those who are teaching the same thing that the Judaizers are teaching here. They're confronting this issue that in order to be saved, one must first be Jewish. In fact, Acts 15 tells us this, that those people were teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so we know in Acts 15... On that particular visit, Paul was confronting this very issue. So as Paul says, after 14 years, he went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas. It could be that he's talking about exactly what we read in Acts 15. There are some differences. We know here in Galatians 2, Paul was speaking of having a private conversation with those who were influential. He's speaking here of the, the early apostles, the early leaders in the church. 
what's probably happening here is Paul was describing a meeting that took place in private before that Jerusalem council that we read in Acts 15. But whatever the case, the same issue is being discussed. What is required for a Gentile to be saved? What is required for someone to come to faith in Jesus Christ? And so Paul here says that he went up because of a revelation. This means that, that, that Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, revealed to him his need to go there to deal with this issue, to take a stand for the gospel. And the reason he goes, verse 2, was in order to make sure he was not running or had not run in vain. Paul here is saying that his concern is that the gospel he was preaching might differ in some way than the gospel that was being preached by the other apostles. Now, I don't think Paul's concern was that he was preaching a false gospel. He is confronting false gospels. But he knows as he's confronting this false gospel that he needs to make sure that he's on the same page and that the other apostles are on the same page. Essentially, what Paul was presenting is this. Paul was very clear that he was not preaching a gospel that he had received from any man. He's not receiving, preaching a gospel that someone just told him about. He's preaching a gospel that he received or a revelation from Jesus Christ. And we looked at Paul's powerful testimony last Lord's Day about how he was on the road to Damascus to go and to further crush and seek to destroy those who were followers of Christ. And there, through a miraculous series of events, he sees Christ for who He is. He comes to understand that Christ indeed is Lord. And so we see as Paul dramatically saves Paul there, that now he takes this message out and he's preaching it to folks like Gentiles. And the question at hand here as he's preaching this gospel is, is this gospel consistent with what the other apostles are teaching? He's confident that his gospel is from Jesus. The question is, is that the same gospel everyone else is preaching? It's a reminder to us that even though we see Paul here as independent in some sense, he was not a lone ranger Christian. He was not out there on his own. He saw the importance of accountability in the early church. He saw the importance of consistency in the early church. He saw the importance of coming together with these other believers to make sure they all fully understand, agreed to, and were proclaiming the same truth of the same gospel. Paul here very clearly was fighting for the purity of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, because it was threatened greatly. See, the Judaizers weren't just those who had teachings that were a misrepresentation or a simple misunderstanding. The Judaizers were preaching a false gospel. They were false teachers. And Paul here is confronting that false gospel. Now, I would imagine if Paul were to do this today, that some might refer to him as being divisive or judgmental. I mean, consider the context here. The Judaizers believed in the God of the Old Testament. The Judaizers believed in the Old Testament teachings. The Judaizers believed that Jesus indeed was the Messiah. The Judaizers believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and that they needed to put their faith in Him. And so I can imagine in today's context, if we had someone who was like this, of this mindset, like the Judaizers, proclaiming these very things, that we might consider them like-minded that we might consider them part of us, one of us. But the issue that was divisive here that Paul was addressing is they had taken the gospel of grace and they had added works to it. 
They had said in order to be saved, you must do these things. They weren't trusting in the sufficiency of the gospel of Christ alone through faith alone. That if that were to happen today, we might think, well, they're, they're not that bad. <laughs> they're not pagans. They're not worshiping a bunch of different gods. They're not Islamic terrorists. See, we live in a culture in a day today where as long as someone says they believe in Jesus, we consider that to be okay. And we live in a culture in a church today where so many want to do away with any type of denominational differences, any doctrinal lines, and just say, well, you know what? You believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. We're worshiping the same God. Why can't we all just come together and do that together? I mean, I've had that expressed to me in many ways along the years in ministry. People who seem frustrated with this idea that there's separations, there's doctrinal lines, there's divisions, and just say, well, we're... We all believe in Jesus. Isn't that all we need? Friends, I'll remind you that we see in the book of Galatians here the Judaizers believed in Jesus. But the question's not, does someone believe in Jesus? The question we should always ask is, what do they believe about Jesus? See, the Mormon missionary that knocks on your door, they believe in Jesus. The Jehovah's Witness who knocks on your door, they, they believe in Jesus. The, the Muslim, they, they believe in Jesus. The question is, what do they believe about Jesus? And what Paul was making clear here in front of this Jerusalem council is that the Judaizers did not believe that Jesus and faith in Jesus alone was sufficient for salvation, that works were required, and as such, they were teaching a false gospel and today in our culture it is the same if someone teaches that anything anything is necessary for salvation apart from repentance and faith in the christ of scripture according to the scripture confessing jesus as lord believing in your heart that god raised him from the dead romans 10 if anyone preaches the gospel outside of that or adds anything to it they're preaching a false gospel. And friends, we cannot have gospel unity with those who do not believe in the truth of the gospel. And all of these cries we hear in our culture, uh, can't we all just get along? Can't we all just agree together? Can't we all just worship together? Aren't we praying to? Aren't we singing about the same Jesus? Well, friends, it's not that simple. Because while somebody might say they believe in Jesus, again, the question is, what do they believe about Him? This was the issue in the early church that was so often debated. That this was the subject of the early church councils. This is what's taking place here in the Jerusalem council around 40 A.D. That the church is new, the church is young, and they're having these discussions to make sure they understand exactly how can someone be saved. And that wouldn't be the last time they'd ask that question. Within a few hundred years, they'd have the Council of Nicaea. The church leaders would come together because at that point, that there was this heresy floating around called Arianism. And what Arianism taught was that Jesus was not eternal. That at some point along the line, God created Jesus. Jesus had not always been and so this was a heresy. 
This was not what the Scripture taught. And so the church got together and the leaders got together and they declared this a heresy. And it didn't end there because year after year, council after council, the early church would gather and leaders would come together and there were always these attacks on who Christ was. Was He truly God and truly man? There were attacks on what the Trinity was, Father, Son, and Spirit. And each time these early councils would come together, they would declare what was heresy and they would stand firmly on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you compare that in the early church with what we see in our culture today when church leaders gather and make decisions. And more often than not, when you see denominational meetings taking place, so many denominations have shifted so far away from the gospel that their decisions aren't to deny heresy often their decisions are to embrace it one headline caught my attention just this last week Uh, you may or may not know the episcopal church they meet every three years their triennial meeting it just took place in austin texas this was the headline last week The Episcopal Church removed restrictions on same-sex marriage, a move that allows all couples to be wed where they worship, even if their bishop disapproves. The article went on to talk about in that same meeting, they also debated whether or not to overhaul their common book of prayer to make it clear that God does not have a gender. During the convention, church leaders called for immediate revisions to correct the quote, overwhelming use of masculine language throughout the book, arguing that the language is now a hindrance to spiritual inclusion. Do you understand what that means? They're saying that if we teach people to pray like Jesus taught them to pray, we are being exclusive and we are cutting people off and that's not a good thing. The disciples wanted to know how to pray. Jesus, Matthew 6, teaches them how to pray. Our Father... And now we have church leaders gathering saying, well, no, no, that's, that, that's too gender specific. That that might offend someone. Well, we don't need to think of God as Father. What about God as Mother? What about God as Father and Mother? What about God as having no gender at all? Again, none of these discussions are based on what does God's Word say? What does God say to us of Himself? It's all based on what does our culture say? And now how do we interpret the Word through our culture? I mean, this issue that the Episcopals decided on that many other denominations have decided on in recent years about same-sex marriage, I mean, that is quite the topic. It's one that's gone to our Supreme Court. It's one that Many people have very strong opinions about it. It's one that churches are under great pressure to cave into, and we see so many that have. But again, the question is, what does the Scripture teach? Now hear me here. The Scripture tells us we are to speak the truth in love. And we need to speak the truth in love to our neighbors, to those who are confused on this issue. We need to be careful that as we speak the truth in love, that it is truth we are speaking. Sometimes we've taken that truth part out. In an effort to appease, in an effort to comfort, in an effort to include, we've excluded what God's Word says. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus was asked about marriage and asked about divorce, and this is what He said. He said, Have you not read that He who created them 
from the beginning made them male and female. God is the one who decides and defines gender. Jesus says it clearly. He created them male and female. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Friends, this is the biblical picture of what marriage is to be. This is what Jesus taught it was to be. Our culture may have very different ideas, and our culture can have whatever idea it wants, but we in the church need to be careful that we don't adopt what the culture says rather than stand on firmly, standing firmly on what God's Word says. And we need to be very careful in our culture that when people who say, well, no, it doesn't matter what the Scripture says, or I think it says this, or this is okay, or this is what everybody else thinks, so I'm going to go with it. We need to be careful that we don't all just lock arms and say, well, let's just all agree to get along. We can't have gospel unity with those who will not stand on the truth of the gospel. And when we sacrifice the truth of the gospel, friends, we sacrifice any unity that we might have in light of it. And that's the type of unity that the Scripture calls us to. And we have seen such a shift from the early church and their firm debates where they held fast calling out heresy to a day now when church leaders gather and they embrace heresy. The days in the early church when they met and gathered and stood firmly on the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Jesus said of Himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. That's an exclusive statement. Jesus leaves no room in what He said for any other path to God other than through Christ. It is an exclusive invitation. It is a ticket that He purchased on the cross with His blood. It is a free offer to all men, women, and children. But it is through Him and Him alone. And now we live in a day where church leaders will gather and it's all about inclusive. It's all about whatever path is the most fitting to you. It's all about you just find God however you want to find God and let's just all be unified. Friends, we see here clearly in the Scripture that if we lose gospel truth for the sake of gospel unity, we have no gospel to be unified in anymore. We have at best a list of moral teachings by Jesus to seek to adhere to, but we have absolutely nothing that will purchase for us eternity with Christ. And now more than ever, we need to be a people who are committed to standing firmly on the truth of God's Word. We need to recognize false teachings and false teachers for who they are leads us to point to we see here in Galatians that false teachings they attack the gospel they attack gospel truth and they destroy any possibility of gospel unity and Paul here has already mentioned uh, Barnabas and Titus going along with him to Jerusalem we know Barnabas from the book of Acts he's mentioned many times in Acts we know Barnabas is is the son of encouragement. That's what his name means. He was very active there in the early church. Titus was as well, but Titus is not mentioned in the book of Acts. He's mentioned in other places in the New Testament. Of course, we have Paul's letter to Titus. 
in which we learn that Titus owed his conversion to Paul, Titus 1.4. Titus mentions he was a, a spiritual child of Paul. It was Paul that had led him to Christ. We know that Titus was a Gentile Christian. Here Paul mentions that he was a Greek He mentions this issue of circumcision. We gather from those things. Titus was a Gentile who came to faith in Christ. And now Paul is holding him up as exhibit A to say, you don't need what the Judaizers say you need in order to be saved. Here is an example of one who was a Gentile who came to faith in Christ. They were not circumcised. They didn't do all these things the Gentiles say they need to do. And they are indeed saved. And in... Making that clear to the church leaders in Jerusalem, he also makes clear that the Judaizers were teaching a false gospel. Again, the Judaizers were saying that people like Titus couldn't be Christians unless they went through the motions, unless they did the works that they called them to do. And what does Paul say to that? Verse 5 says he refused to submit to or entertain their false teachings because he was seeking to preserve the truth of the gospel. Let me think about that for a second. Verse 5 there. What what does it mean to preserve something? I'm trusting somebody who worked for Costco at some point learned how to preserve bacon. (laughs) I've eaten a lot of it in the last few days. You know, we we think about preserving with food. What are we doing? We're we're, we're keeping it. We're, We're keeping it good. Where we're keeping it so that it can be enjoyed and and eaten later on, so that it won't rot, so that it won't be corrupted, so that nothing foreign can come in and corrupt it and spoil it. And Paul says here that's what he's seeking to do with the gospel. He wants to preserve it. He wants it to be righteous and good and holy so that it can be handed down to future generations so that we can gather now 2,000 years later and stand on the same Gospel that Paul stood on. Because he and others who came after him fought for the integrity and the purity of the Gospel. Friends, doctrine is important. It's not sufficient for us just to say, oh, we just all believe in Jesus again. The question is, what do we believe about Him? It is so critical that we be people of the book because it is through this Word that God has revealed to us His Son. And if you don't know what it says about Him, then friends, you can so easily fall prey to false teachings and false doctrines. I mentioned a few weeks ago a conversation I had with a Jehovah's Witness on a plane coming back from Dallas. And and, and as I asked him, as I often will ask folks like him, his conversion, how he got involved in this false teaching. And he talked about how as a teenager, he really wanted to understand the Bible. But in the Christian church he went to, nobody would teach it to him. He talked about growing up in a home with a religious mother and father who never opened the Bible, didn't know what the Bible said. But then he noticed his neighbors had Bible studies every day. He noticed in their home there was always an open Bible. He noticed their conversation seemed to be about the Scripture. And what he soon came to understand is they were involved in a false teaching, a false gospel of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Of course, he didn't see it as that. 
And so many people don't if they don't know what the authentic gospel teaches. One of the largest groups of converts today within the Mormon church, those who are coming into the Mormon church who weren't born into it, are former Southern Baptists. Why is that? Can I just be honest for a second? It's because we're biblically stupid. It's because we don't have any problem listening to people talk about the Word, but we refuse to do what it says. We are lazy and we are gluttonous when it comes to the Word. And we are feeding ourselves with a diet of filth and worldliness rather than opening up God's Word and seeing what it says and repenting and trusting in Christ. Friends, this is not a minor issue. This is the state of your eternal soul. And I cannot say it more clearly than that. If we refuse to open up God's Word and learn what it says and grow from it, we are saying, deceive me. Tempt me. Lead me down the path of self-indulgence. For what? So we can binge watch another season of some show? So we can spend more time in self-entertainment? So that we can fill our minds with worldliness and with garbage? Friends, we have in front of us Exhibit A. Here is a church that was taught by the Apostle Paul. Listen, I, you can rate me however you want to. I'm going to rate myself. I'm not the Apostle Paul, okay? I'm not close to the Apostle Paul. This was the Apostle Paul. This was, this was Paul. He's the one teaching them. I mean, they've got Paul teaching them. And yet, they fell prey to a false gospel. How much easier can we? But we need to recognize these things for what they are. Doctrine is important. Statements of faith are important. If you are a Southern Baptist, you may be entirely unaware. We have a statement of faith. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000. We have an annual convention. I go to it on behalf of the church so that we might vote and make decisions to defend our doctrine against heresy rather than embrace it like so many have in our culture today. I would encourage you to look up online today, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, and you will see a rich statement that defends the inerrancy of Scripture, the wholeness of the Gospel, the Trinity, the Word, what God's Word says. Each statement is followed by Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. I spent my first two years here on Sunday evenings, Wednesday evenings, just teaching through the Baptist Faith and Message because doctrine is important. Statements of faith are important. Friends, we need to understand what Jesus Himself said. If we don't take a firm stand on the gospel that Jesus taught, then we are against the gospel Jesus taught. There's no middle ground here. There's no room for passivity. Jesus said very clearly, Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Friends, the reason we cannot adopt an inclusive gospel is because Jesus taught an exclusive gospel. He taught a divisive gospel. 
I mean, I've heard so often in the church today, well, you, you just seem so judgmental, so divisive. Well, yeah, have you heard what Jesus said? Jesus didn't say, wide is the path. Jesus said, narrow is the path. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the, the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the way is narrow, the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've come not to bring peace, but bring a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves the son, a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Friends, that's the gospel truth. And when we try to make the gospel something that it's not, that's exactly what we get. Something that's not gospel. We need to stand firm on this truth. And when we do, then we can have gospel unity then we can stand firm in this gospel truth but it's not sufficient just to stand there with it god says then we are to take it out to the nations and that's our final point in this study verse our point three what we see now then is the fruit of gospel unity should always be gospel proclamation. And so as Paul addresses these issues there in Jerusalem, and they're unified in the gospel, they, they affirm the gospel he's teaching. They talk about how, okay, Peter, God's blessed Peter to go to the Jews. God's blessed you, Paul, to go to the Gentiles. We want to send you out. We want to affirm this gospel. That they're agreeing on what the gospel is. And the fruit of that is, now they're going to go out and they're going to proclaim the gospel to others. Gospel truth and being unified in it should compel us, friends, to share the gospel with others. And there's this final verse here that may seem a bit confusing. Verse 10, it seems a lot of place where they tell Paul to remember the poor. Essentially, that's contextually, it's not so much a doctrinal issue, it's a practical issue. In the early church there in Jerusalem, you know from Acts uh, chapter 2 that they were sharing as any might have need. Well, there were more needs than there were resources. And so, especially in the church in Jerusalem, there were great, great needs there. And so, essentially what the apostles are saying is don't, don't neglect physical needs while meeting spiritual needs. And so, we're, we need to be careful of that. Many times we see people who are quick to embrace physical needs and neglect the spiritual entirely. We need to build these things on the gospel. I believe that's what's being addressed here. But the point I want to make sure we see is that, that this gospel is to go out to everyone. To, to Jew and to Gentile. There's no partiality. The, the scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You, you don't get into heaven because of your parents' faith, because of someone else's faith. You need to hear and respond to the gospel of our Lord Jesus who calls you and I to repentance and faith. And then in light of that gospel, we need to be doers of the word, not just hearers. And this is what the word tells us to do. 
Matthew 28, the great commission of our Lord, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus did not give us the great suggestion. (laughs) That this is not the great opinion. This is the great commission. Just as Paul was commissioned by the Jerusalem Council, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, you have been commissioned by our Lord to go to the nations with the Gospel. This is who we must be as a church. That This is why we have opportunities to go to Poland and go to East Asia and go to West Africa. This is why we've just sent a couple from us to the Middle East. But I realize everybody can't get on a plane and go to those places. That's why we have opportunities to serve in Bardstown with the New Life Center. To serve at Room in the Inn, which meets a physical and a spiritual need through ministering to homeless in our community. I was talking to Carrie Hahn just this morning who's helping to coordinate our efforts in working with this ministry. And she was talking about what a desperate need there is right now, specifically for men who once a month or once every other month will go and just volunteer one night a month or one night every other month with this ministry. You don't have to have a passport to do it. You don't have to get on a plane. You just have to be a willing disciple of Jesus Christ. This is why we have a partnership. We're starting just up the road in Cincinnati. You might not be able to get on a plane, but can you get in a car? Can you drive to Cincinnati with us for a couple of days? Minister with a church plant there. One of the largest growing areas and one of the most, one of the increasingly Largest areas of lostness north of Cincinnati. Completely unchurched people. A couple from Nashville, Tennessee moved there through our North American Mission Board, started a church in their house with a few people. Now they've baptized over 200 in just a few years. They desperately need people to come and help them. We're going to go help them. Would you go with us? So there are opportunities that abound all over. We have neighbors. We have relatives, some people down the street, some people down the hall, who desperately need to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has preserved this gospel that we might share it in its purity with them, that they too might respond. I'll close with this. I read just this last week a story I thought was fitting from Pastor John MacArthur, he was telling a story about how in his college days he was a runner and how on a particular day they were running in an event they'd done well. He was a part of a relay team. He talked about how he wasn't the fastest runner. And so uh, leg one was the, the one who was fastest he would run and then he was leg two and leg three and four. And so they were at this competition at this event. Leg one, the first runner ran, ran one of the best runs he'd ever had, handed off the baton to... MacArthur, he he ran, had one of the best runs he'd ever had, handed off the baton to the third runner. And then he recounted how that third man came halfway down the back stretch and stopped and walked off the track and sat down in the grass. And then I will read to you what he said. He said, we thought he'd pull a hamstring or twisted an ankle. We all ran across the infield expecting to find him writhing in pain or at least wincing a bit, but he wasn't. He was sitting passively, 
And so we anxiously asked, what happened? Are you hurt? He said, no, I'm okay. I just didn't feel like running. MacArthur says, I confessed that all my thoughts in that moment were carnal. And my teammates and I spontaneously responded with an outpouring of frustration. All three of us basically saying the same thing. You can't do that. You're not in this by yourself. Don't you realize the effort that we've all put into training for this? Too much has been invested in you to just quit. MacArthur went on to say this, I've thought often about that moment in relation to our duty as Christians. We're supposed to take the truth that was handed down to us by our ancestors in the Christian faith and run with it. Not aimlessly, but always pressing on toward the goal so that we can hand off the faith intact, uncorrupted, and I would add preserved to the next generation. Friends, what are you doing with the baton that's been handed to you? Have you received it? The, the Scripture says it's not enough just to know the Gospel. We have to respond in repentance and faith. Have you done that? Will you be able to stand before God one day fully understanding you are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Not standing there seeking to defend yourself, to explain yourself, but fully trusting in the solid rock of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you received that free offer of the gospel? And if you have, what, what are you doing with it? I fear that for so many of us, we are just sitting in a field because we don't feel like running. Maybe you ran the race for a while. Maybe you got tired. And maybe you talked to the same person over and over and over and over again about the gospel and there was no response. And so you just sat down with your baton. Maybe you've been scared, maybe you've been feel fearful, maybe you've been anxious or worried. Friends, the call, the reminder from the Scripture today is that we're to run the race set before us. We're to trust in Christ. We're to take steps of faith. We're to talk to those around us about the Gospel. There are people who desperately need to hear the Gospel in Gdansk, Poland. And friends, there are people that desperately need to hear the Gospel in Bloomfield, Kentucky. And God has entrusted us with it. For hundreds of years, He has kept this gospel pure that we might receive it today. The question is, what will we do with it? I'd like us to consider that as we go before the Lord in prayer. If you would stand with me. Father, you remind us from the words of our Lord Jesus that we have not been called to the easy path. There is one. It is a wide gate. It is an easy path. And you tell us it leads to destruction. But there is another way. There is a narrow gate. There is an exclusive gate. There's the gate of our Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross in our place for our sin. Your word tells us that you made him who knew no sin to take our penalty that we might receive his righteousness. 
And so, Father, I pray for anyone here today who has yet to receive the free offer of the gospel. Whatever reason they have in front of them, whatever issue it is, whatever hindrance it is, Father, I pray that you would remove it right now, that they might cry out to you in the name of Jesus for their salvation. And Lord, for those of us who have received that gift, that baton of the faith, I pray that we would consider right now, who are we passing it off to? Are we investing the gospel in our children, in our grandchildren? Are we investing the gospel in our loved ones, in our neighbors, in our co-workers? Are we investing the gospel? Are we sharing the gospel with those we have an opportunity to talk to? Are we filling our conversations and our minds and our days with things that will not last for eternity? Lord, help us to run the race. Help us to endure. Lord, I pray for those this morning who are just struggling and hurting and are worn out. They have been beaten down by this world. They are going through suffering and trial after trial. And the thought of them telling anyone about their faith may be low on the risk because they are struggling to have faith today. God, would you remind them of the truth of your word that there's a day coming when there's no more death and there's no more tears and there's no more pain. We're with, we're with Christ forever. And he says he's making all things new. And Lord, in the midst of our suffering, would you help us to cry out to you and to invite others to do the same? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.